it's time to move into our study uh, this morning, and we are going to continue in the book of Daniel. I say continue because last week we looked at just an introduction to the book with a lot of background uh, that hopefully you found helpful. Uh, it kind of sets the scene for this incredible 12-chapter um, book, um, but just so full of instruction and teaching and uh, blessing for us. Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Father, we just ask that you would speak to us this morning as we study your word together. Lord, give us spiritual understanding. Lord, the natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will illuminate these things to us, and that as we look at these things this morning, Father, that we would see beyond just the words on the pages, that we would see Jesus uh, that we would be blessed and encouraged as we are brought closer to him through the things that your word reveals, through, Lord, the, the passion, uh, the purity that we see in the life of Daniel. Lord, may we strive to live a life like that. Uh, and yet, Lord, when we say strive, Lord, we recognize that it is not our effort, it's your grace alone that brings about this change and this sanctification in us. And Lord, we just ask you to do that work in us. We just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, just a quick reminder. Uh, Daniel, as we said last week, contains some of the best love stories in the Bible, uh, without a doubt. Um, of course, we've got the story of Daniel and the lion's den, something that uh, most of us will remember from Sunday school or certainly as we were growing up. Uh, and then you've got the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, their names you're not going to hear me mention very often because I've already said, already said that they are the Babylonian names. We'll actually talk about that in a bit more detail this morning. Um, but the story of these three uh, Hebrew young men that were thrown into this fiery furnace. And we said last week that for many, they're just quaint stories. Uh, and yet, as you dig a little deeper, you find there really is compelling historical evidence for the integrity of this record. Um, these aren't stories. These are historical events that took place. And this is a book of history. But more than that, Daniel is a book of prophecy. Uh, and it speaks so much of what is going to come even ahead of us, but certainly ahead of the, the time that Daniel recorded these things. And uh, a lot of the prophecies that Daniel recorded have now been fulfilled, but many are still yet to be fulfilled. Those that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled with incredible accuracy, as you would, of course, expect uh, if these are indeed the words of God given, the God that can see the end from the beginning. But it's also a book of devotion to God. Uh, and we see that played out in the life of Daniel. And we'll talk a lot as we go through this study, not just this morning, but in subsequent weeks uh, about that whole aspect of devotion and the challenge that it lays before us. Daniel's ministry lasted for over 70 years. Uh, we see Daniel uh, ministering into his late 80s. Uh, and we see him serve as prime minister, effectively, under two successive world empires. Uh, we said last week, I think that's a feat unparalleled in history. Uh, Daniel records at the end of chapter one, though, that it was God alone who had lifted him up. And he is the one that has the power, the glory, the might and the dominion. And it is God that rules in the kingdoms of men. Man may go ahead and do what he wants to do, and what he thinks he's doing. But ultimately, God is in complete control. With that, let's jump into the text in chapter one. And we read in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. So note that the book of Daniel starts with a historical statement. 
in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Now, this is a, a moment in time that we can look at, we can codify. Uh, but, of course, the critics, as they always do, question this statement on uh, two counts. They claim that there's no evidence of this siege. And then they try and claim that Daniel's comment is wrong because Nebuchadnezzar wasn't king of Babylon when he came up to Jerusalem and besieged it in 606 BC. And how do we answer the critics? Well, it's really not all that complicated because actually there's a wealth of history um, that the critics choose to ignore um, to verify these records. And of course, uh, we have the likes of uh, Besurus and Josephus, along with the counts that we have in the book of Kings and Chronicles and, of course, Daniel himself. And you can't dismiss Daniel uh, and say, well, we can't look at what Daniel says, because actually Daniel is a historical record and it's verified and proven to be written at the time we know it was written. And they all support the fact that Nebuchadnezzar did come into Judah early in the reign of King Jehoiakim. Now, because Josephus, uh, sorry, Besorus and Josephus unite with Chronicles of Daniel in affirming that captives were taken from Judah and Babylon during this time, you know, it's fairly easy to realize that there must have been a siege to take place for these things to happen. You know, it's a matter of historical record that the Jews were deported to Babylon and not just on one occasion. There was, there was various separate occasions when Jews were taken over a short period of time. In fact, it's over a 19 year period. But notice, of course, that for the, the previous 150 years or so, Israel had been inspect, uh, expecting invasion. Firstly, from the Assyrians, the northern kingdom had been taken captive to Assyria in 722 B.C., so just over 100 years before this, uh, and ever since that point, they've been kind of on, on tenterhooks waiting for the next uh, enemy to come and cause problems. Of course, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt was perceived to be one of those. Um, you know, and of course, now Babylon uh, are the new kids on the block, as it were. They are rising to power and they posed an imminent threat to now the remaining southern kingdom of Judah. So it's kind of inconceivable that Judah would have let its finest young people and wealth all be taken to Babylon without putting up a struggle. They've been expecting this. So to suggest that there was no siege or whatever else, really, it's kind of it's nonsense and just ignoring all the facts of history that we do know. So we don't need to worry too much about what the critics say. And uh, there are many other things that we'll allude to as we go through the study um, that we have real solid historical evidence for um, that we can show that the, what we look at in Daniel isn't some fabricated story. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, however, didn't officially become king until after he'd laid siege to Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus records that Nebuchadnezzar, that was Nebuchadnezzar's dad, uh, died whilst Nebuchadnezzar was in Palestine. And of course, the inverted commas, the word Palestine there, the name that was given to the land of Israel by Israel's enemies, the Romans, uh, to name it after the, the, the Philistines. Um, but nevertheless, um, 606 BC was when that event occurred. So uh, the Babylonian way of reckoning, Nebuchadnezzar's first year as king wouldn't have been until 605 BC. So remember, we're before Christ, so the years count down. So 606 BC is the year of the siege when Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Jerusalem. If you remember, we'll talk in a moment, we'll show you the details. He just had a, a victory over Pharaoh Necho, uh, and now he comes down to Jerusalem on his way back to Babylon. And it's en route that he finds out that he's effectively just become king, that his father uh, has died and he would now ascend. But it would be the next year, 605 BC, that would be counted the first year 
of his reign. That's the way that the reigns were counted. The year of ascension was not counted because it was considered the final year of the previous king. And there's many historical references and uh, uh, things to confirm that. So why is it that Daniel calls him king in this opening verse? Well, quite simply, Daniel wasn't keeping necessarily a diary that he's sharing with us. These are events that Daniel wrote down. Now, by the time Daniel writes this, Nebuchadnezzar was the king. Now, we may use an expression and talk about our queen, Queen Elizabeth, and say when Queen Elizabeth was a child. Well, if you think about it, that statement's not correct, because as a child, she wasn't queen. Um, but because she's queen now, we still refer to her as Queen Elizabeth. And so we could quite legitimately say when Queen Elizabeth was a child and you all know what we're talking about. Daniel does exactly the same thing. We have the same uh, kind of uh, use of wording and understanding today. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel was no different in the way he refers to Nebuchadnezzar. So although he wasn't king at that time of the deportation, he was shortly became king. And when Daniel records it, he was king. So there really is no issue. It's just a bit of semantics, really. And the critics try to lay down a bit of a smokescreen. Now, uh, we'll refer to this a number of times through our study. But just to give you some idea, um, you'll find some of these names are mentioned specifically in the text in Daniel. Uh, the ones that are most interesting to us, of course, Nebuchadnezzar himself uh, and then uh, Belshazzar. Uh, that king uh, who is ruling and reigning, who offends God by bringing out the silverware and the, the gold cups and so on from the Jerusalem temple that they've taken captive uh, and using them at a feast. Uh, and that's when we get the writing on the wall and we'll deal with that obviously as we get there later in our study through Daniel. But those are the kings of the Babylonian empire and where they all kind of sit into the big picture of things. So with all that, uh, just a couple of comments about the chronology, and this is just to refresh our memory and set the scene as we go into the rest of this verse. Uh, it was in 612 BC that Nineveh, that great city that Jonah had preached to, had fallen to this alliance between Babylon and Media. Three years later, Pharaoh Necho leads an army against Assyria, and that's what you looked at in a bit more detail last week when Josiah goes out on uh, route, when Necho's on route to, uh, to fight with uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Josiah is killed in that battle but nevertheless um, uh, sorry uh, Pharaoh Necho goes to fight against the Assyrians uh, and Josiah dies uh, as he goes out to confront Pharaoh Necho um, that then leads three years after that to a battle at Karshemesh now this is where the, the the power vacuum is kind of is there now because Assyria has now been kind of wiped off the scene. They're no longer the power they once were. Their capital's been destroyed and so on. Uh, Egypt under Pharaoh Necho was strong. And of course, you have Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar that are now also rising in power and military might. And that leads to this battle at Karshemesh between Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh Necho. And as we said a moment ago, it's on his way back from that battle that Nebuchadnezzar wins that Nebuchadnezzar stops off at Jerusalem just to get some spoils, to take some trophies back to Babylon. You know, this nation, Israel, had once been great. If you remember, under the time, at the time of Solomon, the Queen of Sheba traveled to find out just if the, if the stories, the rumors she'd heard about Israel's greatness were true. Israel had been a major world power at that time. But of course, since that point, as they'd abandoned God and allowed idolatry to creep in, and the kingdom had been divided so that they had weakened uh, in their, their strength and military prowess and so on. And, you know, it was a, a real kind of trophy for Nebuchadnezzar 
to to be able to go back and say, look, you know, not only did I beat Pharaoh Necho, but I've also managed to defeat Israel. And remember, the Assyrians hadn't been able to defeat Israel under Hezekiah's time. We, we talked about that. Now, it's at this time again that Nebuchadnezzar receives word that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, has died. And so now... Uh, he's the king of the largest empire that the world has known up to that time. Now, if we just look at this, we get the idea of the geography. Uh, you can see the kind of yellow uh, border there showing Israel uh, just to the left center of the map. And then Babylon, of course, where Nebuchadnezzar was based. Uh, and then you've got Nineveh, which had fallen in 612 BC. And then if you move across on the map, you can see there Karshemesh, which is this place where these battles have taken place, and particularly the one in 606 BC, where shortly after Nebuchadnezzar comes down to Jerusalem before heading back to Babylon. So that's kind of the, the scene, that's the picture, that's the, the geography of it. Just a reminder again, the final kings of Judah, Josiah, we've already mentioned, dies against Necho. Uh, Jehoaz becomes king, but just for three months, Necho on his way back from that battle, uh, takes him back to Egypt uh, and Jehoiakim is then placed on the throne and it's now in the third year of Jehoiakim that the book of Daniel begins that's when Nebuchadnezzar comes and lays siege to Jerusalem as we've already mentioned and then uh, puts uh, Jehoiakim under tribute um, we find that Jehoiakim actually serves Nebuchadnezzar for three years uh, but then, not content, wanting freedom and independence, decides to break away and rebels for five years, uh, eventually leading to Jehoiachin coming to the throne just for a very short period of time. So this is, again, just to put the context behind this third year, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. Again, Shinar, you may remember, after they'd uh, departed from the ark, Noah and family, they travelled um, from the east, they travelled westward, and they settled in the plain of Shinar, which is this area today that we would tend to think of uh, Iraq, uh, of course, where Babylon and so on. And that's where eventually the Tower of Babel was built. Uh, of course, this is the place. Uh, Babel becomes known as Babylon. Uh, this is the same location, so the land of Shinar. And again, Nebuchadnezzar then takes these vessels back from the temple in Jerusalem to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure of the house of his God. Now, of course, the critics get in the, the question about did the siege take place? Well, we've already mentioned, yes, it did. We've got no doubt historically that it did. But really for us, the question is not, um, did the siege take place? But why did it happen? And our clue, well, it's not really a clue. It's kind of explicitly stated in verse two. The reason that that siege took place was because the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now, the interesting thing is that this is Daniel's record. Daniel is recording this. And Daniel, who was taken away captive as just a, a young man, he's the one that tells us that God engineered the circumstances. Daniel sees this as literally fulfilled prophecy. May I just make a point here that whenever prophecy is fulfilled and we have it recorded in Scripture, we find that it's fulfilled literally. 
Daniel was what you and I would refer to as a fundamentalist. Now, that word has got bad press uh, because of uh, certain groups uh, where fundamentalism is seen as a bad thing. But really, fundamentalism is actually a good thing because it just means that people are sticking to the fundamentals. You know, if you think about uh, any sporting activity, you know, take football, for example, a referee is a fundamentalist. He sticks to the fundamentals of the game and makes sure the game is played out according to the rules. A maths teacher is a fundamentalist. A maths teacher will stick to the rules of addition and subtraction and so on. You know, you can't just make it up. Um, the rules are there. So a maths teacher is also a fundamentalist, you know, and, and any person that sticks to the fundamentals of something is a fundamentalist. And of course, as Christians, I am proud to say that I am a fundamentalist. It doesn't mean that I'm aggressive or violent towards other people. Of course, that's the, the idea that now is associated so often with that word because uh, the media and so on has tried to, to rebrand what it means. But the essence of the word is simply somebody sticks to the fundamentals. And as a Christian, we should all be fundamentalists, sticking to the fundamentals of what we believe, what is laid down and recorded in Scripture. Now, of course, in regard to prophecy, um, to speak of yourself as a fundamentalist means you simply accept that prophecy is literally fulfilled. It's not allegorically fulfilled. It's not fulfilled in a kind of a, an airy-fairy kind of way. You know, it's literally fulfilled. Micah prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You know, every prophecy that you could cite in Scripture, you will find is fulfilled literally. Okay, exactly as was uh, originally given. And so Daniel here, recognizing the literal fulfillment of the prophecies that had been given by the Lord through people in the past. Now, let's look at just a couple of those. In the book of Habakkuk, uh, we find this statement. I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe. This is God speaking, though it be told you. For lo, I will raise up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Daniel would have been aware of this prophecy. This had been given some 100 years or so before the events. And clearly Habakkuk was saying there's going to come a day that the Babylonians, the Chaldeans will come through your land. And it's going to be something that will make your ears tingle because it's going to be such a, a swift thing. And God is going to bring judgment because of your iniquity. Jeremiah also made this comment. He said the whole land of Israel shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, as I mentioned, that when Habakkuk and Jeremiah and others prophesied this, uh, Babylon was nothing more than just a city-state. Uh, the then great Assyrian Empire was ruling, and of course Babylon was just part of that. But a hundred years later, everything's changed around, and now Babylon have risen to power, and these prophecies are fulfilled exactly as had been given. And again, it's partly why so many false prophets had risen up. Uh, who has spoken against the notion of impending judgment. And Jeremiah particularly deals with this. Many prophets, so-called, have come onto the scene saying, oh, God won't bring judgment on Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the city of the great king. This is the place that God has put his name. You know, it's a ridiculous thought. And of course, they'd seen things like the deliverance under Hezekiah. 
where God had turned back the council of the Assyrians. And if you remember, 185,000 Assyrians had died one evening when an angel goes out and deals with them. And so many in Israel were of the mindset that didn't matter about the sin and the idolatry. God wouldn't hurt them. They were God's people. Well, of course, that was just wishful thinking on their part. God is a God that brings judgment, that will hold the guilty to account. And he wasn't going to let Israel and let Judah get away with the atrocities that have been committed, and particularly during the reigns of kings like Manasseh and so on. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this 70 years later in our study. We won't do it, deal with it too much this morning. But God specifically had foretold that 70 years were going to be decreed upon the nation uh, because they'd not kept the Sabbaths that God had commanded them to keep for the land. Now, I'm not talking about Saturday Sabbaths. I'm talking about every seventh year, the land was to be left to lay fallow, to, to rest effectively. Uh, but Israel hadn't done it. And so God says, OK, you owe me 70 years. I'm going to kick you out of your land for 70 years so that the land can have rest. But then you can return. And later in our study, we'll talk through just the incredible precision and the details regarding this. Now, of course, we see Daniel's faith in all of this, because despite how it seemed on the surface, despite the fact that he, he, he'd gone through this uh, horrible situation of being torn away from his family as just a young man, because he trusted God's word through the mouths of the prophets, Daniel knew that God was very much in control. And so he says, as we just read, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And of course, it wasn't a, an accident or a random event. I'm going to read you a quote by Oswald Chambers. He says this, we can all see God in exceptional things, but it requires the culture of spiritual discipline to see God in every detail. Never allow that the haphazard is anything less than God's appointed order. What a great statement and how we would do so well to, to learn that little lesson that things happen and we think they're random or they're haphazard and we panic because we weren't prepared for it. But what Oswald Chambers is reminding us is that God is in complete control. It's a lesson that Daniel clearly had learned. Let me just read that again. We can all see God in exceptional things, but it requires the culture of spiritual discipline to see God in every detail. Never allow that the haphazard is anything less than God's appointed order. Great statement. We carry on. Uh, so just going to read into verse two. And the Lord gave uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with part of the vessels of the house of God. Now, this statement I read a moment ago, uh, and these vessels were carried into the land of Shinar to Babylon from the temple in Jerusalem. And of course, they were then put into the, the temple of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's God in Babylon. But this itself was a fulfillment of the prophecy that we have in Second Kings. Let me read this to you. We read in Second Kings chapter 20. Um, this is also recorded in the book of Isaiah as well. Uh, because then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? Now, again, this is some hundred years or so before the events we're looking at in Daniel. And Hezekiah, of course, had let these visitors from Babylon come in. And we read, and Hezekiah said, they are come from a far country, even from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, all the things that are in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not 
shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and all that thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord, and of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget. Notice that these are going to be of the royal line. Shall they take away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. What an incredible prophecy. Now, once again, Daniel seems to have understood the prophetic scriptures. I wonder whether he read this and realized that this was now speaking of him. Daniel chapter three, we read, chapter one, verse three, we read, and the king spoke to Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and then notice this, and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So they're looking to get some of these uh, bright young royal people, royal princes and so on, uh, to take them and to use them, that they were going to become uh, advisors to Nebuchadnezzar, and they were going to put them through this training program. And obviously, uh, let's use the word because it's appropriate, they were going to indoctrinate them in the ways of Babylon. Now, a few comments quickly before we move on. Uh, Ashpenaz, uh, this interesting character, um, the inscription was actually found on a clay tablet that's now in the British Museum, confirming the role of Ashpenaz. Uh, the inscription reads, Master of the King's Eunuchs. Uh, so once again, it confirms the historical accuracy of Daniel. Uh, the tablet gives the names. This is actually a quote from the British Museum, where it's now uh, held. It was in the Berlin Museum, this uh, artifact, but now in the British Museum. Uh, the tablet gives the name and title of a high-ranking Babylonian officer who, according to Jeremiah 39, was present at the historic siege of Jerusalem with Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, this, uh, the, the two things here. So the tablet is recording the rank or the role of somebody who is the master of the king's eunuchs. That doesn't seem to be Ashpenaz himself. By the time we get to that third siege that's being referenced, another individual has taken up that role. But it shows that the role itself existed. Now, uh, I've not been able to track it down, but there is a number of uh, articles that I found that speak of another monument upon which the name Ashpenaz, Master of the King's Eunuchs, was also found. But I have not been able to find absolute confirmation of that. But apparently a monument has been discovered and it has Ashpenaz's name on as well. Either way, we know that the role existed and there's very little doubt of the historicity of these things. Now, just going on. These young captives, uh, the practice of carrying away the best and the brightest of a conquered nation was, of course, a good strategic move. You know, firstly, it meant that you rob the nation of its future leaders. And secondly, it would help to keep the conquered nation in subjection, knowing that its favorite sons were effectively hostages under the ruling regime. So there was a real um, thought that had gone into the, the, the why they would take these people and what they would do with them. Now, of course, the ancient cultures knew that the wealth of a nation is not in its silver and its gold, but its youth. If the next generation would be destroyed, the empire would crumble. Interesting, isn't it? There's such a contrast to where we are today. 
because our youth are being effectively uh, systematically destroyed by the eroding of morals and any sense of accountability. You know, today we send our young people to humanistic training camps that we call universities, where morals and, of course, the fear of God are sucked out of them. Uh, we commission research agencies then to try to discover why suicide among young people is so high, why teenage pre- pregnancy is out of control, why violent crime is on the increase. You know, and, and can we really be surprised when evolution underpins almost all further education? You know, we teach young people that they're here by chance, that they're nothing more than animals, and that there are no absolutes, there are no morals that we have to adhere to. You know, evolution, of course, is anti-God and it's anti-science. But that's not dissimilar to the situation Daniel found himself in. He's taken away from a godly environment and effectively taken off to the University of Babylon to be indoctrinated in its ways. Just the same thing happens with our young people. Now, let me just qualify. I'm not against universities and further education for people if it is for their career and if there's a path that they should follow. Sadly, many people just go to university because they don't know what to do next, and it becomes an environment where they are literally thrust into a a den of iniquity. Uh, All sorts of opportunities are presented to them without any constraints, without any uh, accountability or um, parameters to guide and guard them. And of course, we have so many problems that come as a result of that. Uh, And many people that end up with degrees never go on and use the degrees they've actually got. Uh, And uh, in my role, uh, I have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people over the last 10 years. Uh, And I mean, it's probably somewhere about three, four hundred individuals I've interviewed. Um, Many of them got degrees uh, and they've been often degrees in something completely different. Uh, And those degrees didn't help them one iota uh, in regard to their career progression. Um, but again, I'm not opposed to further education, but we do need to pray for our young people, the ones that do go to universities. We need to surround them with godly counsel and wisdom and keep praying for them daily. So uh, that's my little uh, rant on that one. But let's move on with the study. Um, we get into chapter five, uh, verse 5 of chapter 1. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank. So nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now, among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now it's Daniel that's given us this record, and Daniel gives us their names. They were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please, when we speak of this, use those names, and we will go on and explain why we should in a moment. But this was to be a three-year training program for Daniel and his friends. Okay, where they were, of course, going to be given all that they seemingly would need, the, the king's meat and the king's wine, the best of the best, to try and really get these young people, these wise, intelligent, um, astute young people on board and so on. And again, notice that uh, the intention was to nourish them for three years. You know, it's interesting that what the world offers is seldom nourishing. Uh, certainly it's not nourishing to the soul. Anyway, verse 7, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. So these four individuals are now renamed and given Babylonian names. And he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, unto Hananiah of Shadrach, to Mishael of Meshech, and Azariah of Abednego. So these are the names now that they're given. And of course, this was intended to make them forget their God and embrace the gods and culture of Babylon. Now, if we look at these names, 
because Daniel uh, is renamed Belteshazzar, Hananiah is renamed Shadrach, Mishael renamed Meshach, and Azariah renamed Abednego. Daniel is a good, godly Jewish name. God is my judge. Uh, Hananiah means beloved of the Lord. What a great name. Mishael, who is as God. What a great name that is. And then finally, Azariah, the Lord is my help. You know, you get the impression they came from godly families, the parents that loved them and wanted to bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But they then renamed and their new names mean this. Uh, Daniel is renamed Maybell Protect You. Hananiah is renamed Illuminated by the Ra. That's one of their gods. Mishael is renamed Who is Like Unto Aku. So rather than Who is as God, it's Who is Like Unto Aku, another one of their gods. And then finally, Azariah, the servant of Nego, a shining fire. That's the name that he's given. Now, in Revelation 2, 17, we read there, To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the new stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receives it. Now, God is going to give each of us a new name, and that new name will reflect reflect our new nature in Christ. Uh, we don't know what it is yet, but when we get there, we will be given that new name. So this process, this, this, this idea of renaming, has a biblical counterpart. The God will, of course, do it for his purposes, and we'll be given a name that is honoring and glorifying to God, rather than the names that we just have now. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we will go into eternity with those names. <clears throat> because, of course, we are to be conformed to his likeness. Now, in regard to Daniel's purity, uh, just a couple of comments at this point. You know, how much this change of names influenced Daniel's thinking can be seen in the fact that only once does Daniel call himself by this new name. Now, it's interesting because that becomes his name. Everybody in Babylon would have no doubt called Daniel uh, Belteshazzar by that new name. Daniel only calls himself by that name once. In other words, he never took this upon himself. He never kind of claimed it as his own. Uh, and it only appears 10 times in total in the book, including this occurrence. Um, now, interestingly, Bill Cooper actually points out that Daniel intentionally misspells this new name so as to not give the honour to the false Babylonian god. So he, he spells it differently so as to break down the actual meaning of the name. And yet Daniel uses his Hebrew name 75 times. See, Daniel never forgot that God was his judge. Then we get on to one of my favourite verses in the Bible. Uh, and this is just a, an incredible statement by this 14-year-old or so boy. Daniel says this, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, this is an amazing statement. Daniel purposed in his heart. He decided. All right. Now, just try and picture this, because it's really that statement is even more remarkable when you consider the following. Now, we all talk of the bright lights of the city, that kind of vernacular, that expression, uh, the idea that the city is a wonderful place to go. Well, imagine this. You've got this 14 to 16 year old Daniel and his friends. They leave Jerusalem. They travel for weeks across desert terrain. Suddenly they see a city in the distance. As they get closer, the scale becomes clear. This was bigger than anything they'd seen. It's a city that is 15 miles per side. 
the walls that are some 330 feet high and 80 foot thick. And they're actually wide enough for the Babylonians to have chariot races around the top of the walls, six abreast. There were 250 towers around the walls. There were 80 foot brass gates reflecting the sun and shining for miles around. And the infamous, of course, hanging gardens of Babylon that were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. As Daniel was approaching this place and his friends, they'd have seen their city glistening in the distance. You couldn't help but go, wow. But of course, that is what the devil does. He makes things seem so appealing, so attractive that we would just almost lose our senses. Well, with the Euphrates River running right through the center of the city, Babylon had orchards and vineyards inside the city, as well as grazing for the herds. They had pine trees and all kinds of foliage. And remember, this is effectively in the midst of a desert. It was completely self-sustaining. So that in the event of a siege, they could simply shut the gates and carry on life as normal. There were over 200 open altars throughout the city to false pagan gods. 153 temples were inside, including one that had an eight-mile perimeter. Another had a perimeter of three miles. One table uh, from the temple of Merodach was 40 foot long and six foot wide. Apparently it was made from pure gold. This really was an incredible place to visit and to be. The city was about 225 square miles inside, which is about four to five times the size of London today. It's an artist rendering, but you just get a glimpse of maybe what it could have looked a little bit like as you were inside the city. And of course, they had you see that kind of uh, ziggurat uh, there. That would have been similar to what the Tower of Babel, the base of the Tower of Babel, would have been like. Uh, it's located within this 50 mile radius. Uh, the remains of the Tower of Babel today, you can see it on Google Earth if you've got a computer and you want to have a look at it. But into all of this comes these four Hebrew young boys. And you can hear the taunts almost being said as they arrive. You know, well, don't tell us about your God. He's the one whose temples we've just ransacked in Jerusalem. And we've bought all of his golden cups and bowls and shields to put them in the temple of our gods. You better start worshipping our gods. They're the ones with real power. You can imagine these things being said. Uh, you don't want to keep those Hebrew names either. People just make fun of you being named after that God. You need new names that people here will respect. Daniel, what's the use of being called my God is judge? From now on, you should be called may Bell protect you. Hananiah, there's no point being called God is gracious. If he was, you wouldn't be here, would you? You could be illuminated by Ra. Michelle, people are going to laugh if they hear you being called who is like the Lord. So why not be called who is like Aku, one of our gods? And Azariah, you need to rethink your name. The Lord helps. After all, you're not in Jerusalem, but Babylon. You should be called the servant of Nebo. You kind of get this impression. You know, and what would have been the problem with these young Hebrew boys saying, well, OK, you know, let's have a bacon sandwich, you know, or maybe an oyster or maybe have a glass of that wine from the king's table. I mean, it probably tasted really nice. You see, after all, Daniel was now a long way away from those who would disapprove. And really, what harm was it going to do? Who cared in Babylon anyway? Everyone else was going to be doing it and no one's going to think any less of him. You know, and that was the temptation that was facing these young teenage boys. And yet we read he purposed in his heart. Daniel made that decision. 
You know, it wasn't a spur of the moment decision, but a way of life that Daniel was not prepared to compromise for anyone or anything. And, you know, just as Joseph in Egypt had rejected the lust of the flesh for the sake of his God, so did Daniel. Purity was the key, but it's so easy to give in. You only have to do it once. And of course, there's no going back. As we mentioned last week with Daniel, the decision was made before the choice was presented. Learn that lesson. Learn to make the decision before the choice comes. And then when the choice comes, it's not the challenge that otherwise it would be. There's not the risk of giving in to the lust of the flesh. In 1 Peter chapter 1, if you remember, and I'll study through Peter a little while ago, we read this. But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Not just words we speak, conversation, but your lifestyle. Because it is written, be you holy, for I am holy. It's not a request, it's a command for those that follow God. That we are to purpose in our hearts, just as Daniel did. Verse 9 says, now God had brought Daniel into favour and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Proverbs 16 verse 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And that clearly is the case here. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who's appointed your meat and your drink, for why should he see your faces worse uh, likening than the children which are of your sort? Then you shall make me endanger my heads to the king. So Ashpenaz was basically understandably concerned at Daniel's request to have a kosher diet because he knew that if he granted that and these boys didn't turn out looking fit and healthy, he was going to lose far more than just his job. You'll find that Nebuchadnezzar had this reputation of putting people to death and making their houses a dunghill. Uh, we'll see that expression used as we go through. But notice then, Daniel says to Melzar, now, this is a different individual. This is, we're told, whom the prince of the eunuchs has set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. See, notice again, Daniel uses their Hebrew names. Next, he, not content with no from Ashpenaz, Daniel now goes to his servant and says, all right, look, can we just do a 10-day experiment? And clearly, uh, for whatever reason, Meldar agrees to this experiment. And of course, it would have been easy for Daniel at this point just to give in and say, oh, uh, well, I tried to serve God, but it was too, I wasn't allowed. And no, no, Daniel just sticks to it and he's not going to compromise. And so Daniel says, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, 10 days and let them give us a pulse to eat. I'll be honest, it doesn't sound appetizing, but nevertheless, and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So Daniel said, OK, look, let us eat this diet that we want to eat. And then after 10 days, see how we look. If we don't look any better, if we're looking bad, then OK. But if we look good, then let's let's talk about this. Again, Daniel's asking on behalf of his friends. Now, we have to presume that they were in agreement with Daniel, but we find this a couple of times in this book, that Daniel kind of makes these statements on behalf of his friends. And you can just imagine the, the conversation going back. Uh, Daniel goes back to his friends in the afternoon and says, hey, guys, I've just been speaking uh, to, to Melzar. He's, he's agreed that he's going to let us eat pulse for 10 days. <laughs> and they say to Daniel, sorry, you did what? Uh, yeah, but, but I see in this the importance of fellowship. You see, they were together, and by God's grace, God had allowed them to go together, and they were clearly close. 
you know, and this is the importance that we have in fellowshipping, that we encourage each other to do the right thing. See, we're not told that Daniel's friends had put this request forward, but clearly they are complicit with Daniel. They agree with Daniel and they do the same thing. And it may be that Daniel took the lead on this, but we need each other sometimes to take the lead. You've heard, of course, that, you know, when you look up in the, the air and you see birds flying, they fly in that V formation. The reason they do that is to conserve energy so that the one at the front is taking the full force of the wind they're flying through and the ones behind are effectively flying in their slipstream. And that's why the birds in the front will change uh, who's leading the group. But that's why birds fly in that V formation. They know they can't make it on their own. Now, it's the same with us as Christians. We need to work as a team. We need to be there together. We need to encourage each other. And when one maybe would wander, the others reach out and grab hold and help them and sustain them and pray for them. And that's what we need to keep doing with each other. And Daniel here clearly seems to be taking the lead uh, and uh, bringing his friends into this uh, situation as well. So he consented to them in this matter. Uh, so this is this, uh, Melzar, uh, or Melzar and uh, proved them 10 days. You know, OK, we will do this test. And at the end of 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. And clearly that's a surprise to him. And thus, Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. Now, can you imagine how this went down with the other royal captives who were there? Because we understand there were people from other nations. It wasn't just Babylon. Bear in mind that they just conquered Pharaoh Necho. There would probably be some Egyptians amongst this, some Assyrians in this group of trainees getting ready to provide counsel to Nebuchadnezzar. And all of a sudden, Melsar goes back and says, hey, guys, Daniel's got this really good idea. You're just going to eat pulse from now on. And you can imagine all their heads turned towards Daniel. And I, I wonder whether this is the start of the disdain that was shown towards Daniel. In all seriousness, I doubt if this went down too well. Clearly, Daniel doesn't become popular with the rest of these individuals. Anyway, we carry on. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, of course, this is setting the scene for the things that are going to come. But we're told in Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, For promotion comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge, and putteth down one, and setteth up another. You know, we strive so often, but it's the Lord who increases knowledge and gives understanding. We're told in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know, only a short while before this, Daniel and his friends were being taken captive and led to a foreign land, uncertain of their future. But like Joseph in Egypt, as we've already mentioned, they remained true to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he gave them favour and God exalted them in due time. Remember that verse from First Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Great context when we look at this in the life of Daniel and his friends. In the book of Luke, Jesus said, So he said to them, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. You see, it's a principle, it's a promise that God has given of those who follow him, who walk in the way, are promised double blessing. Psalm 119 verses 1 and 2 are your reference for that. 
Verse 18, now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, the, the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king co communed with them, and among them was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Again, the Hebrew names used. Therefore stood they before the king, or literally what it's saying is, therefore they were appointed to stand before the king. The king chooses these four Hebrew boys as, their, as his advisors going forward. It's an incredible kind of rags to riches kind of story in that sense, very much like Joseph was in Egypt. The parallels are, are quite interesting. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. Now, it's interesting that the king's council consisted of these groups. You have the Chaldeans. They were native to Babylon. You have the astrologers, who typically were ones who interpreted the stars and so on. Uh, and then you had the sorcerers. They used enchantments. Uh, and then there was this group, the magicians, who are highlighted here, or literally the magi. They were a priestly sect from Persia. Now, as we go on, we're going to see that there was a particular rivalry between the Chaldeans and the magi. And they did not like each other. But these are all individuals that had come from various countries that have been brought in to serve Nebuchadnezzar as his advisors. Now, along with this, Daniel and his three friends are there also with uh, God on their side to serve the king. And God will use them incredibly, as we see in the subsequent chapters. And then the last verse for this morning of chapter one. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. That's when Daniel retires. You know, it's incredible. Daniel purposed in his heart as that 14 year old boy. And as we'll see, nothing changed by the time he's in his 90s, which is as, as we, we know he gets to at least that point. He continues to the first year of Cyrus, a different empire. That's the, the Medo-Persian Empire with Cyrus uh, at the head of it coming uh, onto the scene uh, later on. And we'll get there in our, our journey through Daniel. But notice what we're told there in verse 21, that Daniel continued. And what a testimony that is. And what a challenge to you and I. Daniel didn't give up. Daniel never turned away from God, never abandoned God, never seemed to question God as to why he'd been taken away from his homeland, from his family, from Jerusalem, why the temple had been destroyed. Daniel trusted God. He knew God was in control. He knew the prophets had spoken about what had happened. And they also had spoken about what was going to happen. And Daniel knew these things. And we'll see that come out in our study. But again, that challenge to us to continue, to carry on steadfastly in our faith. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning just to review these things, impress upon our hearts, Lord, the importance of purposing in our hearts not to be defiled by the things of this world. Oh, Lord, keep our eyes upon Jesus, Lord. Keep us trusting regardless of the circumstances because you are a faithful God. We just thank you for this time this morning. Just encourage and bless us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.